And it's possible for someone who has come to Christ not to understand the great doctrine of eternal security. But God wants you not only to know that you can be assured of your salvation, but you can be eternally secure. And if you don't believe that, you need to listen carefully today because you do not want to misrepresent the living God in saying that you can lose your salvation if that is not true. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's message is entitled, Our Great Salvation. Pastor Carl will address the correlation between the doctrines of glorification and eternal salvation, as well as the spiritual effects that doubt has on believers. We will see that God wants us to be both assured and eternally secure of our salvation, which is only found in Jesus Christ. Please join us in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 31, as we begin. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. This passage is much more than a funeral text. It's for us today. And this chapter opens with the teaching that there is no condemnation And it ends with the truth that there is no separation. And there's an ocean of truth between those two points. If you've been with us, we just completed the epistle of James, and we're between books. And so I have some special messages that God has laid on our heart. And this morning, we're going to look at the last 12 verses here of chapter 8. And as you read it, you can almost feel Paul's excitement in these final paragraphs of the eighth chapter. He looks at the whole purpose of God from eternity past into eternity future. And he makes it clear that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. To give us context, I want to begin reading in verse 28, follow along. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. By the way, that's what the doctrine of predestination is. It's not that God chooses you for hell and you for heaven. It's he's predestined you to a purpose, and that is to make you like Jesus Christ. That's the context. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me walk you into the context of the passage. Though not our focus, verses 28 to 30, is reminding us that God is working all things together for good to those who love God. And he gives us a chain of salvation, five links that are unbroken. The first link refers to those whom God foreknew, the last link, those whom he glorified. And it's all in a past tense, if you will notice, meaning it is as good as done. Now, the doctrine of glorification is when in the twinkling of an eye, God will transform your body and give you a resurrection body like Christ. Experientially, I am waiting for it, but positionally, God reminds us in this passage, it is as good as done, it is credited to my account in heaven. And so verses 29 and 30 give us a picture that there's no leakage between God's calling and God's glorifying us. Now, this becomes the basis not only for our assurance of salvation, but also for the doctrine of eternal security. There are some Christians who say, I'm assured today that I'm going to heaven. I just don't know that tomorrow, next week, next month, I might lose my salvation. And so while they affirm assurance, they do not affirm eternal security. And it's possible for someone who has come to Christ not to understand the great doctrine of eternal security. But God wants you not only to know that you can be assured of your salvation, but you can be eternally secure. And if you don't believe that, you need to listen carefully today because you do not want to misrepresent the living God in saying that you can lose your salvation if that is not true. And so it's possible to have assurance, but to doubt eternal security. You say, is doubt good? No, doubt is bad. Doubt is like pain to the body. Pain is a warning. It's a signal that there's something wrong. It doesn't mean that you're dead. It just means something that is wrong. And if you have doubts over the doctrine of eternal security, then you're suffering from a spiritual sickness that I believe God wants to cure. And so you can see the message this morning in your note-taking outline is our great salvation. And in verses 31 to 39, the Apostle Paul gives five affirmations so that without any doubt, we can know that we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. The first affirmation, the first declaration there in verse 31 is, the child of God can have no successful opposition. The child of God can have no successful opposition. Notice how verse 31 opens with a question. What then shall we say to these things? Paul's first question in verse 31 makes no sense apart from the context in verses 28 to 30. Remember, he's speaking to a particular group of people, to those who love God. He's speaking to saved people, to those who've been regenerated. This is not a promise that applies to everyone. It's a promise that God works everything together for good to those who love him to those who've been regenerated, to those who are a part of, it's literally a, a noun, it looks like a verb in the NES, to those who are the called. He's speaking to a specific group of people. And God is working things out to make us like His Son. And so to answer his own question, I want you to notice he asks five more questions that are declarations of our eternal security. 
And if we are to understand the significance of these five questions that he does not answer, then we must understand why it is that he does not answer them. You see, the reason he does not answer them is because there's an implication, there's an implied truth in every question that he is asking. Notice the first question. It serves as an introduction. If God is for us, who is against us? If is not a a condition of doubt here, it's a first-class conditional statement in Greek, meaning something that is sure. You could translate it sense, but for emphasis, it's translated if. He's already said back in verse 9 of this chapter, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and He does, if the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and He did, if God is for us, and He is, then who is against us? Practically speaking, there is absolutely no effective opposition against the child of God. Look, you would have to be stronger than God to change God's ways, and God is almighty. There is no one greater than God, and therefore no one can frustrate or oppose God's purposes. There is no one out there anywhere in the whole universe that can take on God Almighty. That's the first affirmation, no successful opposition. Second there in your outline, the child of God can have no successful deprivation. The second affirmation is that the child of God can have no successful deprivation. Let's read now verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The implied answer, of course, is he will. He will give us all things. Paul's effectively saying, how is it that we know that God is for us? How is it that we can be certain that God is on our side? What is the proof? And the answer is, is that he gave his son. How can I be possibly certain that God will stick with me, that God will be faithful to me, that God will even take care of the needs that I have. And Paul's answer is the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so the second question tells us that, that not only is there no effective opposition, there's absolutely no deprivation of any kind. You might want to go home and study Romans 5, 1 through 11. It's divinely inspired logic that the Spirit of God gives through Paul's pen. It's what we call an ar fortiori argument. Fortiori is, of course, the Latin that means uh, from the stronger. And so he gives from a greater to the lesser argument. In other words, if God could do the greater thing, then God can do the lesser thing. It was a common first century Roman form of reasoning, and yet Paul uses this, but he does it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. A greater to lesser argument. When the Father gave His Son, He gave us everything. When the Bible says here that He delivered Him over for us all, the Greek verb that is used refers to a voluntary act. In other words, he gave him over, he handed him over. Because when you hand something over, it indicates that you're still in charge. Now think your way through this. When it says here that God delivered him up to be crucified on the cross, understand it was not Judas for money that caused this to happen. It was not Caiaphas for envy 
that caused this to happen. It was not Pilate for fear that caused this to happen. It was not the Jews for spite that caused this to happen. Very clearly, the point here is that, that it was the Father who delivered him over, not for money, not for envy, not for spite, not for fear, but for the love of God. For God demonstrates His love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest proof that God is on our side, that God does not oppose us, is the cross. Do you understand what he's saying here? If God did not spare his own son, that's the greater act, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If there was ever a time when God could back out of a promise, it would be the promise beginning in Genesis 3, unfolded all the way through the Old Testament, that he would send the Christ, the Messiah, to die for us. And if there was ever a time when he might back out of a promise, it would be in the giving of his son. But God is immutable. He never changes. He cannot lie. He keeps every promise. And of course, in the immediate context, people quote Romans 8, 28, and they can legitimately apply it to many situations, but don't miss its context. He is saying God works everything together for good, that what He began He will complete, that those whom He foreknew He glorified. That's the promise. And if God could do the greater thing, He will certainly do the lesser thing. He will freely give us all things. The cross is God's guarantee of our security that the good work that God began, He will complete for the day of Christ Jesus. Now we come to the third of five affirmations. Some of you don't have a Bible because you need one. Come tonight to meet the pastor and you'll get a beautiful Bible tonight at 530. Affirmation three, the child of God can have no successful accusation. The child of God can have no successful accusation. Look now at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You could paraphrase this. Who is qualified to bring a charge against the child of God? Who can possibly accuse a genuine believer? If this question stood alone, there might be many voices that would raise accusations. Our own conscience sometimes condemns us. According to Revelation 12 and verse 10, the devil never ceases to accuse the people of God before the throne of God. Many people will point their finger of condemnation at you, but none of their accusations could ever be sustained. Why? Because Paul states, God is the one who justifies. The supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe has declared us righteous, and there's absolutely nothing that can reverse that decision. God is saying, you are righteous. The word justification is more than just as if you never sinned. It also means just as if you had always obeyed. God not simply wipes the slate clean. He credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. And unless you are covered this morning in the righteousness of Christ, if you die or Christ returns, you will spend an eternity separated from Him. Now, we may not always like it that people will point the finger at us, and that the devil will accuse us. But God is the one who justifies. God has declared His people righteous and holy in His sight. Now, we may not always act like it, 
but it is true of the genuine child of God. There's no church tradition, no person, no act, no sin that can ever sever an eternal relationship with God. Eternal life is what we call it. The one who believes has, not will have, has right now today eternal life because eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is eternal, which is why you ask people, you don't ask people, would you like to know about temporary life? <laughs> you ask them, would you like to know about eternal life? You don't ask, would you like to know about the doctrine of eternal insecurity? No, you tell them about the doctrine of eternal security. Now, that brings us to the fourth affirmation, the fourth affirmation there on your outline that without doubt, you might know that you are eternally secure. There is no successful opposition against the Christian because if God is for us, who can be against us? Absolutely no one. There's no successful deprivation against the Christian because God who gave His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? The promise that He made that those whom He called He will glorify is a settled promise. There's no successful accusation because no one in all the universe can bring a charge against God's elect, and the child of God can have no successful condemnation. Look now, if you will, at verse 34, verse 34 in your Bible. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Now, verse 34 begins with a question. Who is the one who condemns? And the answer to that question is that there are many who would bring a word of condemnation against God's people. People will often condemn other people about their sin. Why? Because it gives them an excuse to be happy in their own rebellion. Sometimes our own heart condemns us. Paul speaks of that. Sometimes our critics condemn us. Our enemies will be quick to attack us and to condemn us. And I've already noted the accuser of the brethren habitually condemns the people of God. But technically, there is only one who can condemn us, and that one is the ultimate judge, and we call him Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that all judgment has been given to the Son. Listen to these words in John 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. That means if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, and you die without a saving, regenerating, life-changing knowledge of Him then the one who loves you, who wants to be your Savior, will someday become your judge. But it also means if you are saved, He will never condemn you. Follow closely His argument. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. He died for the very sins that would otherwise condemn us. He condemned sin in the body of Christ. Peter wrote, and he himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds we are healed. This is why the Apostle Paul can open this great chapter with the words of 8 in verse 1, therefore there is now, circle that word now, in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That three-letter word emphasizes the truth that I do not have to wait for the final judgment to find out whether or not I am accepted by God. 
However, if salvation is predicated on my human effort in some way, shape, or form on my performance, which is what most people think, they see works not as the fruit of conversion, but also as a root of conversion, then God could never make the promise of Romans 8.1. He promised us there is now, today, not later, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am eternally secure. I am not condemned. There is now no condemnation. No one can condemn me because God has already condemned sin and has substitute the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading further into verse 34, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised. After He died, Christ Jesus was raised. It was not just that He rose, but He was raised by the Father. Now, you cannot dissect the Trinity. There is one God, but He exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so, throughout Scripture, you see each member of the Godhead working together. Who gave you a spiritual gift? You say the Holy Spirit did. He did, but so did Christ, according to Ephesians 4, and so did God the Father, according to Romans 12. Who created the world? You say, God the Father did, yes, but all things were created through Christ, and the Spirit was involved in creation, the Bible teaches. And so, who raised Christ from the dead? Now, this slide might be helpful to you. Understand that Jesus was involved in His own resurrection. There's a slide there somewhere, is there? There we go. All right. See? It's just like that. All you have to do is click your fingers. The Son was involved. He said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again, John chapter 10. At the start of His ministry, Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. He's speaking of His own power to take up His life out of the grave. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, is involved in this process of bringing us out of the grave. He was raised from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Paul will write. So while both the Son and the Spirit are involved in the resurrection of Christ, ultimately God the Father is emphasized and given the credit for the resurrection from the dead. And there are many passages that affirm that. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And he said, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, speaking of the Father, but God raised him up again. And then in the end of the sermon, he says, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In his second sermon in Acts 3, he said, You put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, in fact, to, a fact to which we are witnesses. So when Paul affirms here, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who is raised, this statement is significant. It's keying off of a great prophecy found in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, because when God the Father, through the Son, and by the agency of the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, He was saying, I've accepted His death. I've accepted the wrath I've poured out upon my sinless Son, and I have demonstrated He the Son when I raised Him from the dead. So no one can condemn us, because God the Father has received Christ's death 
as a payment, and so there is no condemnation. Look again at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Not only did Jesus die for us and was raised for us, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he intercedes for us. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. This one was actually built perfectly based on the actual uh, dimensions that are given in the Old Testament. Some of, you, some of you were with me when we were in Israel, and we saw some born-again Jews who use this as a witnessing tool out there in the desert. Some years ago at our vacation Bible school, our children built an Old Testament tabernacle. And the children learned that while in the tabernacle there were many pieces of furniture, there were no chairs. There was no place for the high priest to sit down. When the high priest went into uh, the Holy of Holies or the various places to make different kinds of sacrifices, he could never sit down. The writer to the Hebrews keys off of that. Listen to these words. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. But not only did he sit down because his payment for sin was eternally paid for and complete, the text says he also intercedes for us. The Bible calls the Lord Jesus our advocate with the Father. And so when Satan accuses us, he intercedes for us. Now, do you think Judge Jesus is going to condemn us? The one who died for you, the one who was raised for you, the one who was seated for you, the one who is interceding for you? I tell you, no, he will not. He will not condemn you because as the chapter begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the fifth affirmation concerning our great salvation so that we might know without any doubt that we can never ever lose our salvation, that we are eternally secure in Christ. The child of God can have no successful separation. The child of God can have no successful separation. Notice the fifth question that he asked beginning here in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. Now, the devil would like you to believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ. He has convinced some Christians of the false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. By the way, that doctrine did not appear in the history of the church until the 16th century as Jacobus Arminius introduced it. But it is wrong. The Bible teaches that once we are saved, we are saved forever. But the devil would like you to believe that there's grounds for which you can be opposed. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be accused. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be condemned. The devil would like you to believe that there are needs that God will not meet. The devil would like you to believe that somehow you can be separated from the love of God. If you enjoyed today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program OGS021A. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help us sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or on searchthescriptures.org. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.